Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. I'm Alex Maroner, and I'm joined, as always, by Ingrid Timbo. As we continue to look for new stories and perspectives around climate change and water, in this episode, we found ourselves with a particular interest in water governance. That's right, Alex. For this particular story, we're headed down under, taking a look at issues around water law and climate change in Australia. The Murray-Darling Basin in southeast Australia presents a great example of this topic's complexity, covering numerous interest groups, legal frameworks, transboundary considerations, environmental variability, and other drivers that factor into water governance. To give us some incredible insight, we've brought in one of the preeminent experts in water law for the Murray-Darling and beyond. Dr. Emma Carmody joins us on Climate Ready to give us the rundown on all that's at play in water governance, from civil society to multilateral international agreements, and how climate change and drought are intensifying challenges in Australia and beyond when it comes to managing scarce resources. We'll go ahead and cut to the interview, which will be followed by another unique take on climate change in today's Postcard from the Future. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to leave us your reviews and comments. To stay up to date, follow us on Facebook using at Climate Ready Podcast and on Twitter using at Climate Ready Pod. Enjoy this episode. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. So today on the podcast, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Emma Carmody, an expert in water law and so much more. She's also a poet. Emma is based in Australia, where she works at the Environmental Defender's Office of New South Wales, a community legal center specializing in public interest environmental law. Additionally, Emma serves as a legal advisor for the Secretariat of the Ramsar Convention. Last month, Emma was given the 2018 Dumphy Award for Most Outstanding Environmental Effort of an Individual at the 2018 Environment Awards hosted by the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales. We are honored to have her join us for a conversation around Australia's Murray-Darling Basin, climate change, and the complexities of transboundary water management. Thanks so much for joining us, Emma. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Emma, a great deal of your work as Ingrid just mentioned, it centers around the Murray-Darling Basin in Southeast Australia. Can you start by giving us a quick rundown on the Murray-Darling, maybe in terms of size, location, some of the governing bodies, and in addition to that, what first got you interested in this particular basin? Well, in terms of the first part, the basin traverses four states and one territory in Eastern Australia. It covers approximately 14% of our mainland. It includes 22 major catchments, 16 Ramsar listed wetlands. It's responsible for producing approximately a third of our food supply and it's about a million square kilometres. So it's very large. And how did I become involved in this work? Well, I guess I grew up in a country town in the southern Murray-Darling Basin 
And I have really vivid memories of the drought that occurred in the early 1980s when I was a small child. And I think like lots, drought and water management are just a part of your DNA. So I think my interest is really grounded in my childhood. After that, I obviously studied law at university and developed a particular interest in environmental law and decided that that was the area that I wanted to practice in. And about five or six years into practicing, I was living in South Australia, which is the state essentially at the bottom of the basin. It's the most downstream state. It was at the height of the Millennium Drought, which was the drought that basically covered, you know, 2000, almost 2010 in Australia. It's the worst drought on record in this country. So I was living down there working on my PhD. I obtained a position in the Department of Environment there in their Coorong Lower Lakes and Murray Mouth team. The Coorong Lower Lakes and Murray Mouth is a Ramsar-listed site right down the bottom, the very end of the Murray-Darling Basin. And that was my first real introduction to water management issues, even though I'd had a background in environment and planning law. And I was particularly taken by the impact of environmental degradation on the communities around the lower lakes. And then I returned to Sydney and uh, was fortunate to get a job at the Environmental Defender's Office. Excellent. I like that you brought in going back to your childhood, because I think for a lot of us who work on water issues, oftentimes there's a spark that goes back a long way. And that passion starts <laughs> at an early age. I know certainly my case as well. I'll just give you one anecdote. I remember so strongly yeah. as a little girl, but my mum is very passionate about gardening. And like a lot of women in the country, their garden is a great source of solace and comfort. And so for her, gardening was almost like meditation. And I remember so vividly as a little girl, my parents buying extra water so mum could keep her garden alive because it wasn't it wasn't really available due to the drought because for her, for her sense of well-being, it was just so very important. And, of course, compared to the impacts endured by farmers at that time, it's relatively minor, but it still it had a big impact on me as a child. And I can imagine that that leaving a, a very strong impression. And then as Australia has moved kind of in and out of droughts periodically since that time, yeah, I'm sure that that would continue to weigh heavily on your mind. But switching back to talking about the basin a little bit. So as a transboundary river, and in a sense, we mean, while it doesn't cross international boundaries, it does cross state lines, jurisdictional boundaries, and these sorts of things. There are no shortage of interested parties and institutional players when it comes to how do we use a river as a natural resource? How do we use it for the economy? You've mentioned farming, for example. What groups in particular do you work with? I assume that you work with a larger coalition of different groups. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? So the Environmental Defenders Office is a not-for-profit law firm that specialises in public interest environmental law. So you're absolutely right. We advise and represent clients about water law. The client base is extremely diverse, which is one of the most interesting and satisfying parts of working there. I advise a lot of farmers. I advise traditional owners. So by traditional owners, I mean Aboriginal Australians who are recognised as the traditional owners of their particular country. I also advise large conservation groups community groups that have formed around a specific issue. In this instance, it might be water management in a particular part of the basin that they are concerned about. And I think that pretty much covers it, really. 
it's a diverse range of clients. Earlier, you spoke about the scale of the basin. So even as someone based here in the U.S., well outside of Australia, I often hear about governance of the Murray-Darling Basin. It seems like it pops up periodically in the news, and a, and a large amount of money is being allocated towards that governance. But for those of us that don't follow this narrative maybe as closely, what are some of the big milestones in governance over the past decade or so, maybe starting with the Millennium Drought that you mentioned and the 2007 Water Act? That's a very good question. I think like in a lot of transboundary systems, the governance framework is laid and relatively complex. If we start with the 2007 Water Act, as you rightly point out, that was passed at the height of the Millennium Drought. It was passed by a Conservative government at the national level in recognition of the fact that water resources across the basin had been historically over-allocated and it was in the national interest to reverse that trend. Um, and as an Australian, I think you know, I'm quite proud that we reached that point. It's an excellent piece of legislation. Just to provide listeners with a little bit of context, our national government doesn't have an explicit right to make laws about the environment. And by that, I mean in our constitution, there is no power that says the national government can make environmental laws. But back in 1983, the High Court, which is our version of the United States Supreme Court, the High Court found that the national government could rely on what's called the external affairs power to make laws implementing treaties to which we were signatory. So what, what's happened with the Water Act and with our other major piece of environmental legislation at the national level is that they derive the majority of their constitutional validity from the bilateral and multilateral environmental treaties that Australia has signed. So for the Water Act, the most important of those would be the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Ramsar Convention. And it means that there's kind of this, I guess, environmental safety net that's built into the Water Act because chief amongst the obligations in the Act is this requirement that it implement these treaties. So I think, as I said before, it's, it's an excellent piece of legislation. Implementation has been complicated and much more fraught, as you would imagine, in a large transboundary water system where you have a range of competing interests and ideas about how water should be managed. So really the main function of the Water Act is to require the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the institution that exists at the national level to manage water. It requires them to draft and implement what we call the Basin Plan, which occurred in late 2012. It's a legislative instrument that is set up to allocate water resources between different users in all of the catchments across the basin. And it was obviously an historic moment. It's a significant piece of legislation, but extremely fraught. There are some water users who feel perhaps that it's taken too much water away for the environment. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are certain stakeholders, environmentalists, even farmers who we represent, who don't think it gives enough water back to the environment. So since 2012, we've been in the implementation phase because the basin plans, it's almost like a framework agreement. It does have quite a lot of detail in it, but it basically says over the next 12 or so years, a number of other subsidiary instruments have to be created to properly implement the Basin Plan. We're in the process of those various instruments, which are more detailed, being created. Again, it's been quite contentious. To just throw one additional wrench into the ecosystem of governance, 
how is climate change exacerbating or influencing this governance or is it making it easier? Is it making it harder? And what, what is the role that you're seeing so far of climate change in all of this? So at the moment, the basin plan in and of itself, the numbers that underpin the cap on extractions for each catchment, they're not based on what we think might happen in terms of water availability. They're based on what we know has happened in the past. And it's been one of the most contentious points about the plan. There are a lot of scientists and other stakeholders who argue that in a country like Australia, which is the driest inhabited continent on the planet, given climate change projections and impacts on water availability, it's not good enough for your cap to be based on the historic climate record. Really, we need to be a little bit more strategic in our planning and factor in possible future climate change. Is there any potential remedy for this or would it take a major legal overhaul? The basin plan can be reviewed. And it is possible that a review could recommend that the cap on diversions be amended to take into account climate change. I guess a lot of people feel like time is running out. You know, people will say, we feel that climate change is happening now and the most sensible thing would be to act now. But that unfortunately hasn't happened. In a way, it's not entirely surprising because of the multitude of views and interests, I guess, that the government's trying to balance. But from a scientific perspective and even a social perspective given the likely impact or the possible impact of climate change on what he uses it's not necessarily the best strategy. Beyond just thinking about the Murray Darling and thinking more about water law in general in the context of climate change you know we've had legal texts governing human interaction with water for at least 3,800 years going back at least as far as the code of Hammurabi right and modern water law is pretty notorious for being quite complex and often quite contentious. And so I'm wondering how climate change is impacting water law more broadly in Australia. And I'm wondering if, in your opinion, are existing regulatory frameworks sufficient or is there a need for maybe new or different types of legal mechanisms? Well, at the moment in Australia, climate change is not adequately incorporated into our regulatory frameworks. That applies across the board, across all jurisdictions. So the most sophisticated piece of legislation we have to deal with water management is the Water Act and then under that, the, the Basin Plan. In terms of the Basin Plan, you don't need to change the fundamental architecture of the Act or Plan. It's a question of undertaking a review and making a decision to change the cap on the basis of the best available information we have about possible future climate change. So it's not, to my mind, necessarily a problem, certainly at the basin level, it's not a problem with the regulatory framework. It's a policy decision. A policy decision was made that the caps that apply across the different catchments would not take into account climate change. As with most you know, rivers and natural resources more broadly, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in the process. So with your work at EDO, it seems like a lot of this effort is about giving more representation to some of the lesser heard voices in the Murray-Darling Basin. With so many stakeholders having a vested interest in the basin, how, are, how currently are their voices and concerns being prioritized, either in terms of the law or otherwise? And how do you think that we should prioritize their concerns? That's a really good question. Over the last five or six years, a lot of our clients have felt that they have been marginalised. 
that they have only been engaged in a very tokenistic manner. There was a program by our leading investigative journalism show on the ABC, Four Corners. After that was aired in July last year, the government, I think it realised it had to change its approach. And since then, I'd say there have been some improvements in level of engagement with our clients with a more diverse range of stakeholders and groups with an interest in water management in the basin. From a legal perspective, there are consultation requirements that are set out in the Water Act in relation to proposed amendments of the basin plan. That's quite a formal process. It requires the proposed amendments to be put on public exhibition and then anyone, any, any member of the public can put in a submission commenting on the proposed amendments. But to me, that's very different to the kind of, the true kind of engagement that you need to build with stakeholders. I mean, that's a statutory requirement. It's important. But genuine engagement isn't just ticking a box and saying we've received your submission, therefore we've heard your voice. Genuine engagement is, firstly, it's it's not being partisan. It's not favouring one group of stakeholders over another. It's giving each and every group of stakeholders equal opportunity to access decision makers and to have their concerns heard. And that's not necessarily something that occurs because of a statutory requirement. It's about the policy and practice that's built into the institutions that manage water in any country. It sounds like that's kind of taking the stance of seeking passive involvement of these stakeholders instead of actively seeking their input. You're saying, we'll let you speak up if you happen to have the means to engage in, in the particular mechanism that we're offering instead of actively seeking their input. That's right. And really what's happened since the Basin Plan was passed is that you've got obviously some stakeholders that are particularly well mobilised and quite frankly, they just have had better access to decision makers within bureaucracies and to ministers mm-hmm. and have had, some would argue, a greater level of influence than all other stakeholders. But I would say that over the last year or so, as a result of a number of exposés in the media, a court case that we're running, which concerns allegations of non-compliance with water access licence conditions, as a consequence of some of these things, I'd say that efforts are being made to introduce some level of parity in the engagement process, which is it's pleasing. There's still room for improvement, but it's important to acknowledge, you know, certainly I've seen a shift. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about your work with Ramsar. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about um, your work with the Ramsar Convention and what that entails in terms of also with your work in the Mercer Darling as well? Just to give a little bit of background for people who aren't familiar with the convention, the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, it's a multilateral environmental treaty. It's been signed by 170 countries. The most recent country to sign and ratify the treaty uh, was North Korea, which is very exciting. In simple terms, the goal of the convention is to protect and restore wetlands, which, as you probably know, are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of various forms of development. So my role within the context of the convention is to act as legal advisor to the Secretariat, which is based in Switzerland, and to the 170 contracting parties. So I attend all of the meetings of what's known as the Standing Committee, which is the governance body that presides between COPs for three years. So I am present at those meetings. I advise about 
the correct interpretation of the rules of procedure and other substantive matters relating to decisions of the Standing Committee, historic resolutions and their meaning and implications, and about international law more generally. And then in between meetings, sometimes the contracting parties or the Secretariat will approach the Secretariat and then the Secretariat will approach me and say, can you please provide advice about X matter to do with the Convention or with international law more generally? So that's the role at the international level. At the domestic level, it's very different. It's been historically about implementation of the Ramsar Convention in Australia, so completely different, not not about rules of procedure or advising about COP resolutions or standing committee decisions. I work on a similar kind of international policy level with the UNFCCC and climate change more broadly. And as you describe, it's all about rules of procedure and these very bureaucratic sorts of things, and then making that connection to how do these global governing bodies, how does the decisions that they make really filter down to the national level and then even further down to the local level at at the implementation scale? It's quite different. Do you find it hard to reconcile these two? That's something I struggle with sometimes. I don't know. I accept that they're two very different roles and they're important and interesting for different reasons. Mm-hmm. People can often be really critical of multilateral environmental treaties. They'll say, well, they haven't really halted biodiversity loss. They're not working. And to me, it's really missing the point. The treaties are often really framework agreements, and then it's up to the parties, the contracting parties, to implement those obligations. And that will ver- that will vary greatly from country to country depending on their resources, the socioeconomic backdrop, what their national priorities are, and so on and so forth. I don't think you can blame the treaty structure itself. The mere fact you can get with the Ramsar Convention 170 countries signing a treaty. At the COP, we had 143 contracting parties that turned up. The fact that you can get that many countries turning up and more or less agreeing, it takes time, it takes negotiation, but agreeing on resolutions and passing those resolutions, it's extraordinary. I mean, you think only a couple of hundred years ago or less, there is absolutely no way you would get 143 diplomats in a room together agreeing about anything. I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, within the context of human history, it's pretty significant that these treaties exist at all. Are they a complete panacea? Of course not. Nothing is with environmental law. But I think in the absence of the Ramsar Convention, things would probably be a lot worse at the domestic level because there would be no overarching international attention or direction or focus on the protection and restoration of wetlands. To close with, we wanted to give you a little bit of time to reflect back on any of the lessons you may have learned from your experiences either working with water scarcity and climate change or more broadly within the Murray-Darling Basin? I've learned how important it is to engage stakeholders from the ground up. I have learned that the role of civil society in Australia and I think in any democracy is absolutely vital, that in the absence of a strong civil society, there is always the risk that the most well-funded, loudest stakeholders will have a disproportionate influence over policy and that is fundamentally problematic when you're talking about the management of a scarce resource. I take a great deal of pleasure working with scientists and I think that 
we're at a point in history where we just cannot disregard what scientists are saying about uh, water management and water management practices. Of course, this has to be balanced with other considerations, but the role of science and scientists really, it can't be underestimated. And I think ultimately if we dismiss science and what scientists are saying about water management, it will have a medium to long-term detrimental impact on not only the environment, but on water users. That's the risk that we're running. And I've learnt that the law is a really, it's a very important tool for attempting to redress uh, government inaction, if that's what's happening, which has been the case in some instances in Australia, in particular in relation to compliance and enforcement. And that the case that we've brought, which centres around allegations of possible water theft, it has actually helped to keep the government intact. So I guess the law isn't everything, but it can play an important role in redressing imbalance uh, when we've swung too far in one direction. That is an absolutely perfect way to wrap up this chat. Ingrid and I have loved having you on the Climate Ready podcast, Emma. Thanks again for stopping by. Well, thank you both so much. Yep, take care. Thank you, Emma. Okay. Bye. I feel like Emma basically did our job for us at the end there, Ingrid. It's so interesting to think about all the different levels of governance involved here, and she seems to be active in all of them. One day she's working in rural Australia with a local farmer to address water allocation concerns due to water scarcity, and the next she's in Dubai giving advice to international conventions on multilateral frameworks for protecting natural resources. In part, that brings us back to a reoccurring theme here on the Climate Ready podcast, and that is of water as a connector. Water management is a universal challenge throughout history and across geographies. As Emma said, there's no panacea when it comes to water law, but there is hope that we can structure legal frameworks and policies in ways that give fair consideration to all parties involved and that take into account the rapidly changing conditions on the ground and unknown futures due to climate change. I'll go ahead and leave it at that. For any listeners that would like to find out more about the issues facing the Murray Darling or the work of the Environmental Defenders Office, check out the links in the episode description. Before we wrap up, we've got another postcard from the future, this time by Alan Hesse, a cartoonist, freelance conservationist, and creator of the upcoming Polo the Bear comic on climate change. Alan draws attention to the important and often undervalued relationship between science and the arts. Dear friends, it's that time of year again coming up to Christmas soon. Even now in 2028, at 8.58, the magic of the holidays has never left me. A big part of that is just the change of season. Where I live, I've always enjoyed the cold of winter. This year is a bit warmer, but not that bad. We haven't quite achieved the 1.5 degree target for limiting global warming yet. But now that all governments, including the US, which are thankfully back on track, are finally complying with strict regulations on emissions controls, things are looking a heck of a lot better than they did before 2020. Those greenhouse gases, of course, are still up there, the accumulation of hundreds of years, but it looks like we're on track to at least avoid a two-degree raise in global temperature. That's what the latest science says anyway. There's so much science whizzing around, so much information, thousands of scientific papers a year. All of that, of course, is fundamental. Science guides policy, informs the media, influences public opinion. The science is vital. But if information is just technical, 
and when there is too much of it, it can also be counterproductive. We quickly get saturated and there is a risk of shutting down and the masses become indifferent. That's dangerous. It got to that point about 10 years ago when climate change became almost like a new fashionable buzzword. Everyone was talking about it, but very few actually really knew what they were talking about. There was a lot of confused messaging. Some saying the planet was doomed beyond all salvation. Others saying it wasn't so bad. Some even thought climate change didn't exist. Seems hard to believe. So what's really cool now is how the arts have really come to the aid of science. The cavalry arrived. I've always said that art and science are actually only two sides of the same coin. The coin of human creativity and expression. They belong together. The ancients knew that. Arts do something that science cannot. They get right into human emotions. That's important because we tend to make decisions based on emotions rather than what we know. So it's great to see famous actors and other artists getting more and more involved in climate action. Setting an example for millions. I feel very proud and humble that my own cartoon character, Polo the Bear, has got so famous. He has so many fans now. Above all, what we need is an informed, engaged public. People can't just afford to stay ignorant or misinformed anymore, leaving the hard parts for the technicians and politicians. That's why I'm really pleased to see how talk and action on climate change has broken free of being limited to the confines of science and policy. It's become something you hear about all the time, in households, at primary schools, while you do your shopping, on supermarket labels, everywhere. With the rise of social media, democratic expression across most of the world has bloomed like never before. Look at the People's Chair that the UN launched for the first time back in 2018 for that year's climate talks, thanks to the help of the legendary Sir David Attenborough. This is the kind of thing that is keeping this planet going. Only just, mind you. We still need to get better at being responsible humans. And what's also cool is that it's no longer all just doom and gloom stuff. What I hear these days is above all solutions, what people are actually doing at home, at work, while out shopping, to limit their carbon footprint, act responsibly, taking care of our Mother Earth. All these behaviour changes address a lot more than climate change. They also address so many other issues of our time, like deforestation, water rights, poor governance, poverty, solid waste. That's a huge change from the days before 2020. It started back then, of course, but this new age of acting responsibly has really taken off. I guess we humans are really good at adapting, although in this case we did leave it very late. I would say too late in many ways. Have we learned our lesson? I think so. I hope so. Cheers. That's all for this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Dr. Emma Watson, and to Alan Hesse for sharing his postcard from the future. Until next time, everyone. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.